Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Let's hear about this episode's topic. Hi, my name's Sam, and ever since I found out I'm not going to be able to go to college this next year, I just haven't been myself. I haven't been able to eat. I'm sleeping all the time. None of my interests really enjoy me anymore. Is this what depression is? Wow, that's, um, you know, that's heavy. Yeah, it's really hard to hear, and it's something that a lot of teenagers are feeling now, but also have felt for a long time. It's a hard time being a teenager. They're trying to come to terms with their own independence and identity while there are still pressures to kind of conform and fit in. Right. It's an interesting time to conform and fit in and yet really to differentiate themselves at the same time. And then there's all the hormonal changes of puberty too. Right. And so it's a time that's really ripe for mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And right now, we're also dealing with social isolation with COVID-19. And so people are worried about their futures, how this is going to affect them and the health of loved ones. So this can really worsen a lot of mental health um, issues. In this two-part series, we're going to tackle the really complex topic of teen mental health, starting with depression for episode one and moving to anxiety in episode two. They're really big topics, so we hope to give you a basic overview and provide information for where you can find out more. Yeah, these are big topics, and we know teenagers can be moody, but, I mean, how many of them really meet the criteria for depression? Take a guess. Um, Like 5%, maybe? The number is actually staggering. Just over 3 million adolescents in the U.S. have had at least one major depressive episode, which we'll talk about, with the overall prevalence of depression being between 15 and 20 percent in 12 to 17-year-olds. That's really high. I'm really surprised at how high that is. Are these children being diagnosed by their physicians or are they being seen by a mental health professional? So we as providers actually don't always do the best job of diagnosing depression in teens in the primary care setting. Some research has shown that major depression is misdiagnosed in up to 75% of adolescents. And for those teenagers that are diagnosed with depression, 60% receive no treatment. Data shows that the average length of an untreated depressive episode in young people is six to nine months. So it's a really long time when you think about how they're feeling or if you yourself have experienced this. It's way too long because we know that being depressed can lead to significant problems in a person's development, their future achievements, and health outcomes as well. Right. So children, for example, are in school, and this can lead to them not doing very well in school. It can impair their relationships, not only with their peers, but with family members. And some children turn to drugs, and this can lead to drug dependence and self-harm or even suicide. Mm -hmm. All very significant things. So we as parents and pediatricians and primary care providers need to do a better job at identifying, diagnosing, and treating teen depression. So let's learn how to do that. Let's start 
with identifying um, depression. So occasional bad moods or outbursts are normal in the teenage years, but true depression is different. So what are some clues parents can look for in their teens that they may be red flags that they're struggling with depression? One thing that's tricky with depression is that it can manifest a little differently in everyone. And teenagers, in contrast to adults, are more likely to exhibit depression by being extremely irritable or profoundly angry in addition to having sadness. For teenagers, they often withdraw from family members and from friends. And so the person on the phone call talked about that they were losing um, interest in things that they used to enjoy. And so sometimes they refuse to go to like soccer practice or something or weekend hikes with the family. And they may start to sleep more. And, you know, with teens, you know, we talked about teens sleeping in an earlier episode. So sometimes sleeping more may be difficult to pick up, but sometimes they're sleeping like all the time. Or in contrast to that, sometimes they might be suffering from insomnia. They could have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. You also might see changes in their eating habits. Usually it's eating a lot less or a lot more than usual. Mm -hmm. Teens with depression can have significant changes in their academic performance, and teachers may be the first to alert you of something being off, that they're having difficulty concentrating on even simple tasks at school. And as with many mental health issues in kids of all ages, depression can commonly cause what we refer to as somatic symptoms or physical complaints with their bodies. So they could have abdominal pain or body aches or headaches, um, and that's a presentation of, of mental health issues in some people. So one of the scariest symptoms of depression is suicidality, which, if it's undetected, can lead to suicide attempts or even completed suicide. So if you're a parent of a teen or if you're a teen yourself who's experiencing some of these signs or symptoms of depression, where should we start? Well, as a parent, because of these behaviors... You may already feel like you're walking on eggshells around your your teen um, because you're you're nervous about sort of setting them off and making them worse. And so you kind of don't even want to bring it up. There's a reluctance to talk about these things. And sometimes you don't feel like you really know your child anymore, that you don't feel close to them and you don't know how to approach them or what to say. But it's really important to remember that children with depression, they frequently feel alone and misunderstood and they may feel not cared for. So starting a conversation with your child signals to them that you see that they're suffering and you're worried and you want to help. And this can be one of the most powerful interventions out there. And so don't underestimate the fact that this can have. That's totally right. The most important thing is to confront it in a supportive and non-judgmental way. Ask to talk to your teen about these behaviors you've noticed and how they're feeling, but try not to ask too many questions. You really want to listen and be an open and receptive presence for them. No matter how they are feeling and how scary it is for you to hear what they say, it's crucial that you validate their feelings. Mm -hmm. It's important to continue to encourage self-care and social interaction when possible. Um, Physical activity is really important, too, and so you want to promote at least 10 hours of sleep 
at night. You know, the self-care, it's really important, and there's strong evidence for a specific therapy, um, this therapy called behavioral activation. And this focuses on getting people to increase their meaningful and pleasurable social activities. And this has been found to reduce depressive symptoms. So sometimes what you need to do is limit screen time to allow for these social interactions and these other activities. Mm -hmm. These are great tips, and I'm glad you brought up screen time because, you know, it's one of my all-time favorite topics. But we also have parents ask about the correlation between teens being on their phones and social media all the time and the development of anxiety and depression. So I thought I would spend one minute talking about some of the research that has been done looking into this. Yeah, please let us know. So the data around this is kind of mixed. One study that I found found a higher suicide risk factor, so not completed suicide, but risk factors for suicide for both genders, boys and girls, for teenagers that were on screens for five or more hours per day, which sounds like a lot to us oldies, but that's like the vast majority of teenagers these days as someone that works daily with kids and asks them about screen time. Another study looked at depression and its association with screen time. And it actually showed increased levels of depression in teens on both ends of the spectrum. So for kids that had little to no screen time, they had the highest depressive scores, as well as kids that used over two hours of screens per day. And so it shows the benefit of that pro-social aspect of social media and being connected because people that didn't have any of that had high depression. But then once you go too far and you're using it all the time and you're really consumed within it, um, that can be dangerous as well. Again, we're still learning so much about this, but I do think that it's important to think about screen time and, and be talking to kids about what they're seeing there. Yeah, so it's an interesting area. It's a new world with, um, with the screen time. What happens when a parent or a teen is concerned that they might be experiencing depression? What's the next step for them to take? So the next step would be to visit your pediatrician or your family physician or mental health professional if you guys work with one. The U.S. Preventative Task Force, it's an a organization, you know, a federal organization that talks about guidelines that are really evidence-based that we should be doing with all people. Um, so they say that all teenagers aged 12 to 18 should be screened yearly for depression. And so when you bring up your concerns, your physician might give you a validated screening survey to fill out to sort of quantify that. Mm -hmm. The one we use in our office and is the most widely used here in the United States, I would say, is called the PHQ-9. And that is a survey that says, in the past two weeks, how long have you felt one of these things? So not at all, several days, more than half the days or nearly every day. And it goes through things like Poor appetite, weight loss or overeating, moving or speaking so slowly that other people have noticed, or being so fidgety or restless that you're moving around a lot more than usual. And then it goes through lots of the criteria for depression, which we'll talk about. So these questions can help support a diagnosis of major depression, and that's based on the DSM-5, or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual Criteria, um, and depressed mood plus four symptoms, or irritable mood plus five symptoms, 
will count to make this diagnosis. And so some of these symptoms um, will include things like significant weight gain or loss, increase or decrease in appetite, sleep disturbances, psychomotor changes, tiredness, fatigue, low energy, sense of worthlessness, impaired ability to think, or recurrent thoughts of death or actual suicide attempts. And there's other issues that are considered also. Yeah, and this will go on for two or more weeks, so there needs to be that time component of it. And, of course, you want to rule out other things that might be causing it, um, other mental health disorders. Um, But I think that it's important to discuss the duration, like I mentioned, to keep things in context. So, for example, if a teen has experienced a significant life event, such as a move or a parental divorce, they may be experiencing more of what we call an adjustment disorder. But this is different in that it usually comes on within three months of the stressor and terminates six months after the stressor. And it's usually much more mild. And it also is different from bereavement, which we know occurs after the death of a loved one. So it's important to note that while both of these can be their own entities, they may also have overlap with major depression. So adjustment disorder is not as severe as depression. And if somebody meets criteria for depression, even in the setting of a life event or stressor, you can make a diagnosis of depression. And so I can't help but think about our caller who... Um, you know, is not going to be starting college, which he's probably been working for. So that would be a life stress or a big event. All of us are experiencing a life stress or a big event right now. And so there is an adjustment aspect to that. But um, depending on how long it's lasted and the severity of the symptoms, it doesn't necessarily exclude him from having a depression diagnosis as well. And we briefly mentioned um, in the diagnostic criteria that you should not have any other mental health concerns. And one of the biggest ones we look for is something called mania. I don't think we need to talk a lot about this, but um, mania is a distinct period of abnormally and persistent elevated, expansive, or irritable mood in addition to sleep disturbances, you're having increased energy, you have a heightened um, behavior and activity level. And these symptoms all have to occur together for at least four days. So it's someone that's really like really elevated and going, going, going all the time for four, four or more days. And this is important because it can help us make sure that a teenager doesn't have bipolar disorder, which is treated differently than depression. And so it's just something to think about if you are worried um, and would be important to bring up with your physician if your teen has had more of these types of symptoms. It's important to know it's really uncommon that it presents in childhood or even the teen years, and it's definitely different than mood swings. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, but bring up all these issues and, and, and share all these with your pediatrician or the mental health provider because they really want to get down to the right diagnosis and make sure that the treatment is appropriate. So your pediatrician may also order laboratory tests to screen for other medical problems like thyroid disorders and vitamin D levels. And they may also ask about drug use and other things that may be tied to depressed mood. So for example, some females experience premenstrual dysphoric disorder where the depressed mood always comes before the monthly period or the week prior to the onset of menses. 
So let's say your teen has been evaluated by your pediatrician and diagnosed with depression. What's the next course of action to get them feeling better? Depending on the severity of the depressive episode and family and patient preference, we usually start out with therapy alone or therapy and medication combined. So the importance of therapy as a component of their treatment cannot be stressed enough. It's really important. It helps teens talk through the changes and difficulties in their day-to-day life and to develop mechanisms to cope with and process it all. And it's really important to find the right therapist. So I tell all of my patients um, to call a few different providers. They should have a list of like five and almost interview them. They should feel like they can connect to the person and really open up to their therapist. Right. It's a really special, close relationship. So they need to feel comfortable with their therapist. Most medical insurance companies will be able to provide a list of behavioral health therapists that they contract with. And for people in public insurance in California, for example, there are mental health programs set up by each county to facilitate finding a provider. Yes. And once therapy is initiated, or even before in some circumstances, depending on the severity of the depression, medications are also used. Usually the first-line medication your doctor will try is called an SSRI, or Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. That's the class of medication. Mm -hmm. And the mechanism of how SSRIs work includes addressing abnormalities in various neurotransmitter systems in the brain, and most notably serotonin. There's new research that's been focusing on the effects of SSRIs on increasing brain plasticity or the ability to form new connections. And we think that this can facilitate changes in circuitry abnormalities found in depression, especially when used together with therapy. And this can help shape the formation of these new connections. So, in fact, research has found that the combination of therapy and SSRIs is synergistic. So it's greater than the sum of its parts. That's really interesting. You may recognize some of the names of these different SSRIs, which are fluoxetine or Prozac, um, escitalopram or Lexapro, or sertraline or Zoloft. Usually your provider will start off at a really low dose, especially in teens, and then gradually increase it, monitoring for side effects. What we always say in the office is start low, go slow. It's important to remember that these medications do take time to work, so they're not magic pills. It usually takes four to six weeks at a therapeutic dose, so that might not even be the first dose that you start on to see the effects of SSRIs. So one of the things that as physicians we have with all medications is some of them come with black box warnings. So these are really major warnings about side effects. And can we talk about the, there's an FDA black box warning that makes a lot of parents and providers worried about initiating these medications in teens. Yeah, definitely. So this warning was issued after there was a study that showed a slight increase in suicidal thinking in teenagers on SSRIs, but there were no completed suicides in this data group. The data since has not been replicated, so in future studies this was not shown, but it did get that black box warning. And as a result of this warning, we saw that SSRIs were being used less in the teenage age group, and we actually saw an increase in the rate of suicide in youth. And obviously, we don't know if this is linked to one another, but you have to assume that 
being undertreated is increasing some risk. So at this point, we really think that the risk of suicide is greater for untreated depression than the risk is of being on an SSRI, if that makes sense. But that being said, you should always, always talk to your physician or whoever is starting you on this medication about this warning. And you want to check in frequently with your teenager and physician to make sure that your teen isn't having any of these thoughts. Absolutely. So how long should parents estimate their child will be on these medications, like the rest of their life or just a few months? When you're still titrating the medication, like I talked about, so finding that dose that's effective for you, you are going to meet with your doctor often. So you're usually going to meet once a week or every other week where you may be going up slightly on the medication. Once you've found that sweet spot, that dose that you take that that makes you feel normal again, we call this remission. Um, your mood has stabilized and you're feeling back to normal. And then you still want to continue to meet once a month with your provider. Um, especially in the teenage years, we really like to see kids a lot. It may be different in adults. <laughs> Once a teen has been in remission for 6 to 12 months, then at that time, a trial of tapering down the medication may be appropriate, but should always be completed under the observance of your physician. So you don't just want to be like, oh, I feel good. I'm going to stop it. It's really important to kind of do the step down like we did the step up and want to make sure that your mood remains stable. So there's the potential to come off these medications at some point once in remission. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that we also touch on the very scary but real danger of suicide or suicidal thoughts in teens. The rate of suicide is up in teens over the last decade, and it's now the second leading cause of death in this age group after accidental injury. Approximately 50% of Children and teens who commit suicide have seen a doctor in the month prior, and 80% had seen a pediatric provider in the last year. So we know our job as physicians is we that we really need to do a better job to ask specifically about suicide. So what do we do if we see a teen in clinic with thoughts of hurting themselves? So if we see a teen that has thoughts of suicide, there are a few different things we need to make sure that are done. If they have active suicidal intent or they have plans, then it's important to get them to the emergency room and to be seen right away. They may need a short-term hospitalization and treatment. On the other hand, some kids have passive thoughts and they think, oh, maybe I would be better off dead, but they don't have any active plans. Um, and so for them, we create a suicide safety plan, giving them information for where to reach out when in crisis, um, discuss with the parents about creating a safe environment, lock up all medications, remove firearms from the home so that children can't impulsively hurt themselves. And we'll provide an example of um, the safety plan on our website. Your primary care provider will typically be the one that is managing routine depression diagnosis and medications. But in some kids that are more difficult to control and you've tried a couple medications, they don't seem to be achieving remission or feeling better, then your physician may refer you to a psychiatrist, which is a physician that specializes in mental health conditions. We've talked today about warning signs for depression, screening for depression, diagnosis and treatment. 
This is a really complex topic to try to squeeze into one episode, but we hope that we've discussed some of these issues so that you've learned some of the basics. Let's summarize our discussion today. So depression affects 15 to 20 percent of teenagers. Some symptoms your teen may be depressed include changes in mood, irritability, appetite, sleep, and many more. If you're concerned that your teenager is depressed, you should seek medical attention from your physician who can help evaluate and determine the severity of the depression. Depending on the severity, your physician may prescribe medications, most commonly the SSRIs, in addition to therapy. Right. We want to reiterate that depression is very common, as we've discussed, and there's no shame in acknowledging these feelings and seeking help. Um, So I'm really uh, proud of our caller that he is starting to acknowledge some of these symptoms and, and some of those symptoms that you've discussed can be associated with depression like we've talked about. And so we would recommend um, following up with your primary care provider to get a better sense of what's going on and, and hopefully get you on track to feeling better. And it can never hurt to start um, seeking a therapist that you have a good relationship with. So calling your insurance and asking for that list for therapists, that's a great way to start. So if your teen comes to you and shares these feelings, it's so important to take them seriously, to listen to them with compassion. And remember, you have the shared goal of making them feel normal again. And if you feel like you're having a mental health crisis or need to speak to somebody about suicide, the National Suicide Prevention call line in the U.S. is one 800 273 or go to the nearest emergency room. We would like to thank Dr. Melissa Hopkins, a child psychiatrist at UC Davis Children's Hospital, for reviewing today's episode, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. This is a really hard topic, I think. Um, You know, many of us have had mental health issues. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult because, uh, you know, I think one of the things we were talking about is that parents are afraid to bring it up with their children when they see this happening because they're worried that their child might like snap back at them or retreat further into their shell if they bring it up. But I think that it's really important to make sure that you're a supportive. A lot of these kids that I see just feel like they have no one they can talk to. And so establishing yourself as a parent or another close, you know, friend or family member is really important. You know, I I share sometimes with my patients after um, my mom passed away when I was younger, you know, I was like a preteen. I was in therapy for a long time and I still, you know, going through medicine, you you see different things that are really hard and impactful. And so I'm still a huge proponent of having a therapist on call, even if you don't need to go, you know, every week, like you may sometimes during your life, having someone that you have that relationship with that is not in your immediate family network that you can just talk to and debrief and explain how you're feeling and process things is helpful. I tell a lot of my patients for everyone, even if you don't have major depression. Yeah, I mean, the death of a close family member is, you know, that, that's an adjustment, right, for for us. It's a natural part of life, and it's an adjustment. But sometimes that that can trigger other more serious depression. And, you know, I remember when my father passed away, even before he passed away, I was thinking about it a lot. It was a very, a very difficult time. 
Um, and then, of course, after he passed away, it was difficult too. But you know, it's it's very it can be very difficult. And the teens who may have less experience putting things into perspective, lesser triggers might cause them uh, to have um, serious depressive symptoms. That's a great point. So we don't want to minimize anything that to us as adults may seem like insignificant or why are they feeling that way, you know, in their shorter life, even something like, uh, you know, a breakup with someone they'd only been with for a short period of time or failing a test. These are bigger life events for them that can can be really significant. So do not minimize feelings of depression, um, especially right now. A lot of kids are are really suffering. So reach out have those conversations, and of course, follow up with your physician if you have any concerns. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 